Hello, and welcome to the Thinking Elixir podcast, where we cover the news of the community and learn from each other. My name is Mark Erickson. I'm Cade Ward. And I'm David Bernheisel. Let's jump into the news. Taxjar, an Elixir-backed service, was acquired by Stripe. I happen to know about this because I actually work at Taxjar. So it's kind of big news for me and in my life, too. We have some links in the show notes. So now we know that Stripe is using <laughs> Elixir in some fashion for their system because, well, I write Elixir right now for Taxjar. It is potentially the largest acquisition of a fully remote company, which I, I thought was really interesting. So Taxjar is, yes, 100% remote. Every single employee is, uh, is remote. There is no office. Pretty interesting news. We mentioned it here because we're always interested in, in uh, business deals with, uh, that, that involve Elixir, you know, um, Elixir companies. And uh, I know with personal experience, Taxjar is one of those companies. And it was acquired um, by a very nice uh, company called Stripe. You've probably heard of them. Uh, so big news. Really happy to be part of that too. Stripe is one of my favorite go-to services for doing payments. Next up, Erlang OTP24 is coming soon. We're all looking forward to that. Lucas Larson, who works on the OTP team, shared that OTP21, the older version, has received its last patch and will no longer be supported. So if you happen to have a system that's running on OTP21 or earlier, make sure you take a look at that and get it upgraded. So I just wanted to drop in a link to an example of using Livebook on Nerves to experiment, document, and control a BMP280 temperature sensor that is connected to a Raspberry Pi. So check out that link if you're interested. I love that just because it's one of those examples of being able to do something like play with hardware on a device using Livebook and just kind of interactively hacking on it and then be able to document it. Whenever I'm exploring and trying out new things, I often document it in like a markdown format anyway, just in a separate document. Like I did this and this is the output I got. How cool would that be just to be able to have that be part of the live book doc? I do this kind of approach anyway, and that just makes it so much cooler. And Nerves is a great place to play with it. It's just such a faster way to iterate and play as you're learning with some learning something new, right? So yeah, that's really exciting. Next up, Jose Valim was on the Changelog podcast, and he talked about NX, Axon, Livebook, and machine learning with Elixir. So it's a great interview that pulls out a lot of different topics together that have kind of been building up over time. It's a great resource to share with people who might be interested in that topic. One more Livebook piece of news. Um, Livebook got collaborative editing with user-specific cursors, something similar to what you see in Google Docs. We'll drop a link to the pull request. It has a little video and it looks really good. It's really snappy, and I'm excited to try it out. I know, David, you've been interested in doing this collaborative code editing, and then I see it here, <laughs> and I think David will love this. <laughs> yeah, I am. Yeah, and it, and it nails it pretty much. The experience is uh, just ex what you would expect. You know, you see different colors for every person that's, that's logged in. You see their selection. When you hover over the selection, it'll hover uh, or pop out uh, the name of the person that's, that's doing that stuff. Also interesting as part of this pull request, um, there's some optimizations that I thought were really interesting too. So it's it's not like literally broadcasting every single change as it happens. It it's more efficient than that. Really cool. I'm definitely going to take some inspiration from that. Yeah, <laughs> I'm excited about it. Only 620 lines of code or or so, something around that. That's not bad for this kind of feature. <laughs> All right, next up in the news, um, there's another conference uh, that's happening here soon. Actually, uh, so if you're if you have a day. Alchemy Conf is happening. It's a virtual conference. It's happening on May 28th. It's organized by Subvisual. 
That might sound familiar, and it, and it might be because you listened to, dear listener, uh, an episode of ours back in uh, a while ago now, episode seven with Miguel Palias, who works at Subvisual. So he probably we probably talked about it there on that episode. And that company, and I'm sure Miguel included, is uh, organizing this, uh, helping organize this this new conference, Alchemy Conf, and that's alchemyconf.com. Uh, so some of the speakers include Jose, Marla Sariva, Evadne, and Mikhail uh, Muscala. Uh, and all tickets, proceeds go to charities. So pretty nice. The price, I think, is pretty cheap, too. So if you're interested, go check out the site and go grab you a ticket. Uh, those are some nice speakers. I'm sure we're going to all learn something pretty new there. And another conference is in the news with ElixirConf EU announcing that they're hosting a hybrid conference. So this starts in September 9th and 10th, and it's going to be in Warsaw. So if you're in the neighborhood, you can go physically. And if you don't want to make the journey, you can watch online. And so they're having kind of that dual interface ability for this conference setup. So check that out if that's something that interests you. And as I wanted to mention, we got some feedback from our last episode where we talked with Camille Scauron about cryptocurrency trading through Elixir. Some concerns were shared over cryptocurrencies in general just being bad for the environment. You'll notice in the episode, we focused on the Elixir aspects and didn't endorse any specific coins because I understand that concern. And personally, I'm more interested in the proof-of-stake coins that don't have the energy consumption problem because I don't believe the proof-of-work ones are really sustainable. So just wanted to mention that. So if you're still interested in learning and following his guide, but kind of uncertain about some of the cryptocurrency stuff, there are some ways you can safely and environmentally play with that. And that's it for the news. Today, we're joined by our special guest, Sheriar Nashir. Sheriar, thank you for coming. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Now, I'm excited because you recently did a blog post where you were talking about association defaults in Ecto. And honestly, when this first crossed my feed, I didn't really grok what it was. And it was Cade who said, no, this is really cool. We need a, this is, I like this. And that caused me to look into it a little deeper. Then I realized what you're actually doing and, you know, with these association defaults and things like that. And I didn't even know you could do that. So it's really cool. I'm excited to talk about this, kind of learn some more about how we can use this, where it fits. But before we jump into all that, Maybe you can tell us a little bit more about you. Like, where do you live? What kind of work are you doing? Anything you want to share? So I'm Sheryar. Uh, I'm a software engineer from Lahore, Pakistan. I've been in the industry for over 10 years. Before COVID, I used to be one of those obnoxious nomad developers who travel and work from all over. But now I'm just mm-hmm. stuck in one city. Uh, I'm currently working as an engineer at Slab, which is a modern knowledge base and wiki for teams. And I also run the Google Developers Group in Lahore, where my team organizes conferences, workshops, hackathons, as a way to support the emerging developer community here. The goal at Slab is building this better team documentation tool. And one of the reasons I get really excited about Slab is because I personally struggled with documentation systems before. And the way we're solving this problem is by building this beautiful real-time collaborative editor with powerful search and integrations all using Elixir, OTP, and Phoenix. We're also hiring, by the way. That sounds really nice. I'm assuming that you have used Notion. I've never used Slab, so I was wondering, is it similar to Notion at all? Uh, The concept is very different. So Notion, while being an excellent product that I also use, tries to do everything. But Slab focuses mainly on documentation and lets the other tools do what they do best. 
So instead of Slack doing everything, it in, instead focuses on powerful integrations. So the team can keep, uh, fo- keep focused on, you know, writing and consuming documentation and let other tools do what they do. Is it fair to compare it to Atlassian's product Confluence? Uh, in a sense, yes. And I don't want to say something bad here, but you should definitely use Slab. noted so it sounds like you have a a pretty good long history in software development and you mentioned that slab uses elixir which is fantastic it's always it's always great to hear these the i've heard of slab you know before now so it's it's always great to hear of these companies that you've heard about uh also using you know the language that that you love but knowing your history you've you said that you've been at software development for more than 10 years or so you obviously have ties with uh, Google since you're leading the Google Developer Conference over there. How long have you been using Elixir? What what languages have you been using before you know, Elixir? Where, where's your background from? I started using Elixir back in mid or late 2015. So it's been roughly six years now. Before Elixir, and I'm sure this is no surprise, I mostly worked with Ruby and Ruby on Rails with some occasional Node.js thrown in. Okay, that's great. So you have uh, some Ruby experience, some Node.js experience. So that that seems very in the realm for Elixir. I've I've heard a lot of that from other folks as well that uh, come to Elixir. What's Slab's relationship with Elixir? Is there other languages that Slab uses? What's some favorite things that you liked about Elixir? What drew you to Elixir? The alpha version of Slab was actually built in Node.js, and this is before I joined the company. What we realized was that we had to jump through a lot of hoops to you know get things uh, get things working right. Our previous engineers decided to you know look into Elixir. It was so much easier and simpler. So currently, Slab is completely an Elixir and Phoenix application with React on the front end. We have almost no external dependencies. We we don't need to rely on any you know middleware to you know get the real time editor working correctly. So OTP itself is very powerful, which handles everything everything very smoothly. Oh, interesting. So you, so you mentioned the real time editing there. That does that mean that you have like a transformation document, you know, of of multiple editors at the same time? You have some uh, server that's capturing those and sending those those events to everyone else. That's that's pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. It's interesting that she said that there, you have like no external dependencies. That's quite a feat. You know, uh, Phoenix being one of those dependencies, obviously, and Ecto, I assume, because we're going to talk about that later. But that's pretty amazing. Does Slab have any open source software that you guys put out there like that, that transformation, that document transformation schema? It is something that we're working on open sourcing right now. I don't really have a timeline for you on that. <laughs> okay, that would be pretty cool. Uh, to take advantage of that, and yeah, I agree, Van. That Flixer and Phoenix, those are those are great fits for for a model like that. Well, now I'm ready to jump into this topic, and but first, you know, we should describe what it is we're talking about here. I think most people who are familiar with Ecto know that Ecto has a default option on fields, where you can specify the default value to populate a struct when it's being created. But your article is about putting defaults on the associations on like the has many and even many to many associations. So from your article, I was really surprised to see one that I could even reference a function to define how a default value is assigned. And it was something I didn't even realize it was there. So please tell me more about this. Like one, I'm curious, like, how did you come to this knowledge and figure out what this is doing? 
Yeah, so similar to the default option on the individual fields, Ecto also supports passing it to associations and even joint tables through the has many and many to many uh, definition. When defining an association on an Ecto schema, the default option can accept a keyword list of fields and the default values, but that's not what makes it so powerful. In most cases, you could just set the defaults on the association's Ecto schema instead of passing the keyword list. The only use case for it would be when an association should have different defaults depending on who it's associating with. What makes this feature so powerful is that the default option can also accept an MFA tuple, which if the listeners don't know is a tuple with a module function name and arguments. And what this does is at the time a new association record is being created, either via cast ASOC or put ASOC, it calls this function with the parent and child structs lets you run any custom logic and return back a new record that should be saved. So this is something that I was also surprised to learn about uh, because this opens the door to so many new possibilities. Instead of manually figuring out, figuring out the values for some association attributes every time you create them, you could just describe the behavior to Ecto and it will take care of it. With keyword lists, the drawback is that you can't look at the parent record's attributes or run any custom logic uh, at runtime, but this lets you do that. Just one example use case of this at Slab is this allows us to ensure all comments belong to the correct post where post is a parent, post thread is the child, and the comment is the grandchild. Uh, you also asked about how we learned about this, and it, it's, it's an interesting story. So early last year, I was in the process of uh, adding an org ID column to all of our tables, including favorite tables, to ensure better security and reliability of data. We also wanted to prepare in advance for sharding the database by modeling data correctly early. So going through the docs, I discovered that this feature was just recently released, but it went mostly unnoticed at the time. We tried it out and it worked great. That's pretty cool. I, I've always classified in my head, any anytime that you're, you're defining your schema, all that stuff is a macro and it's only at compile time. And... You've basically opened the door, said, no, 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 no. It can also happen at runtime. And that's the whole MFA, you know, argument there. It can call it at runtime, which I thought, oh, man, that's pretty cool. I didn't realize it could do that. One thing I just want to mention for the dear listener is, you know, we're, we're mentioning MFA. And a lot of times in the tech industry, that's like multi-factor authentication. Just also, like if you're coming new to Elixir, it's a very common... And Sherryar mentioned this, but I just want to make sure it's clear that, you know, when we say MFA, we're talking about module function and argument like that that pairing is a way of saying i want to execute this function at some later time and i can just pass around this is the module the function to call on that module and the arguments to pass to that function you know if you're hearing that and you're confused that's a little explanation there but one of the things i think is cool that you mentioned there is that you're getting when you're passing it that mfa you're getting the parent struct and the child struct i think that's really neat i didn't realize that so I'd love it if you could go a little bit deeper on that. Well, he has an example on his blog post about, you know, the music albums. So it has albums, artists, and tracks. And one of the examples on here is that, you know, an album has many tracks. And so every time the default for the tracks has many association is that the that the track always has the correct artist ID put in. And so it looks like you've coded it up so that you don't even have to worry about putting the artist ID on there. It'll just automatically be set anytime you're adding tracks into an album. So it's kind of cool because it's like a way to codify 
business domain, right, into the system. It's like this track will always have the correct artist ID. And if you set it, I'm going to overwrite it anyways. Like it's always going to be belonging to the correct artist. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I'm trying to think of how to do this like without this feature. And I think the way to do it without this feature is to like always have you'd be like coupling functions together you'd always every time that you do a like a build or something of this of this record you'd have to also verify or override or something you always have to chain these 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 functions together whereas this you're you're just using an ecto feature and, and it's just chain set where it happens which is pretty cool so it's it's it feels like the right place to do it versus coupling a bunch of functions together to ensure that you 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 keep your data sane yeah, I think I would put it in the context and then you would just have to hope that they are always right. <laughs> using the correct context method. And if they don't, then they have to set the artist ID themselves. One of the other things I appreciate about your blog post, it has some very clear examples. So for your dear listener, you know, understanding some of what we're talking about with like artists and tracks and it can be difficult to follow. So check out the blog post to get some more concrete things to look at and examples. Uh, but one of the things I just like is I appreciate the difficulty of finding a good example that shows what you're trying to talk about. And just like the idea of artists and albums and tracks and how they have these complicated relationships with vocals and instruments, it's a good example. I thought it was it worked really well. I give you props for a good you know finding a way to express the idea well. So good job. Thanks. You have another example in your blog post about single table inheritance which I thought was pretty interesting because that single table inheritance can kind of leverage this this defaults uh, as well, except I don't think it needs the MFA as much. And you're right, Mark. Yeah, MFA. Every time I Google MFA, it's like all these <laughs> one-time password things that come up. And it's like, yeah. oh, <laughs> I mm -hmm. had to pair it with Erlang or Elixir or something. So talking about single table inheritance, which is a very common pattern in Rails, and you, according to your history, you know you came from Rails as well. So this, this, I imagine you picked it up from there. And and when I transitioned into uh, Elixir and and Ecto, I, I found that single table inheritance wasn't really a pattern that was appreciated as much. And maybe rightfully so, maybe not. I'm not sure. But the, either way, the ability to set up single table inheritance was a little bit more difficult. Uh, I think Acto has since then made some updates to make that easier. And your blog, your blog post actually uh, gives a good example of that. So when you're creating a track, you have audio tracks inside of that, right? You, you might have like on this podcast, we have five audio tracks going on. <laughs> a little glimpse of, of how this thing is produced. So we have like five audio tracks going on. And one of them could be vocals. One, one could be instrumentals. But they're all the same record. They're the same database table underneath. And one way you can tell them apart, though, is usually with some other field on that table, like type. And so you can create a, a track that is a vocal type and another track that is an instrumental type, but it's all on the same database table. So single table inheritance means you can store these different kind of types of, of records, but in the same database table. That's the single table part of it. And in Ecto... Nowadays, you can do you can has many vocals. You can say your your one your one model, which is track, where, and then you put in your ecto query here. And in, in this case, it would be type vocal, and then you can also have your defaults set on there, which is pretty cool. Talk to me a little bit more about single table inheritance. How 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 have you found using that? You know, with ecto versus the alternative, which is not using single table inheritance. 
Yeah, so a disclaimer here, I do not endorse single table inheritance. So that <laughs> okay, was cool. <laughs> you know, just to adjustment as, as, as an example. So yeah, please don't do single table inheritance in Elixir or anywhere else. <laughs> okay. Well, so what's the alternative? Tell us the better way then. Just have uh, separate tables. Right? That's yes. all it takes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the reason I love that I've worked with a Rails code base that had single table inheritance because that was like what Rails was showing to do at the time. It was it became very popular for a phase. And so I was still dealing with the data of it. And then you're have, dealing with this problem where you can't have a cascade delete that's handled by the database, right? You have to have all your cascade deletes happen through code. That's just, it's much slower. And you know, you're, you're having your application do what the database is best at. You know, I've, I've had problems with it, but yeah. So I'm glad to hear you say, no, you don't need to do that. <laughs> <laughs> I, I feel like I was setting you up for a trap now. <laughs> um, well, yeah, I'm glad to hear you say that. And, and yeah, that's, I think that was kind of the point. You know, I, I can't remember. I want to say that single table inheritance in Ecto, when I started like five years ago, you couldn't even do it. I don't even, I don't think Ecto allowed you to put queries into your, your has many definition. I, I don't think you could could do that nowadays you can i believe so it, it is possible to do single table inheritance but you lose that referential integrity you know like what mark said that the cascading deletes can't really happen on the database side anymore so you bring much more logic into the application and it's funny that you mentioned that at the time i remember like uh, four or five six years back people asking on elixir forum how to do single table inheritance in elixir necto and often times there were jose's reply there you know don't do it don't do it. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> just don't. So something else I saw in your blog post is you talked about a feature that came in Ecto 3.3, where it was this new uh, option for join defaults. And somehow when I was watching you know, things develop in the Elixir community, I missed this one. Maybe you can give us a little bit more insight as to what this is and kind of what it helps us do. Uh, so similar to you having defaults on uh, the fields and associations, join defaults is another option, very similar to the default option, but it sets the default attributes on the pivot table instead of uh, the table it's associating with. So this is uh, useful in a couple of scenarios. Uh, the main one that I can think of right now is multi-tenancy, which is something uh, that Slab also uses this for. In Slab, uh, we have an org ID column on every single table, including pivot tables. And as I mentioned previously, the reason for this was just so uh, there is no data leakage between different teams. And also we wanted to you know, prepare early in case we wanted to shard our database. So for pivot tables, instead of you know, defaults, you choose join defaults along with join through. And it works pretty much the same. That's an interesting case uh, that hearing you talk about potentially sharding, right? But your your multi tenancy, and so for now, you know, you're just setting a field of that organization ID, and that's a pretty cool case there. I think I might actually be able to use that myself. That join through and, or join defaults and then regular defaults, yeah. And then you, in your example, you're you're pointing that to an F MFA again, where you, at runtime you just pull down. Yeah, the appropriate records and set the right values. That's that's nice. That's pretty nifty. So you guys are able to set say an org ID on the join table and on the association table at the same time, all without having to remember to do it every time you call the code. Yeah, 
that's the key. It's like, because then you don't like accidentally forget when I'm doing this particular update over here, adding an association through this other case here gets forgotten. Or like a new engineer comes in, they're adding a new context function and they don't realize that that needs to be set in both places. They're not using the the golden path that somebody else created earlier. Mm -hmm. So I'm curious hearing you talk about multi-tenancy. I know there's multiple ways to do that in Ecto. One of the other ways being prefix. I'm curious to hear if you guys consider prefix and why you ended up just going with a column on every table. Sure. So from a design perspective, it just made more sense to have an org guide column that could be indexed easily. Uh, we didn't want to have separate tables for each org or you know, just mess around with prefixes. There is a built-in feature in Ecto. It's called prepare query uh, that we could have used. In Slab's case, we use a custom wrapper around repo which has you know a lot of other custom checks and features that we've added so it just made more sense to use you know an org id column and you know have it go through this custom wrapper yeah that's cool i've i was researching this idea of wrapping repo it had never occurred to me and i think i found out about it around the same time that this blog post came out maybe it was you that mentioned it and i don't remember but around that time i was reading about other people using prefix and wrapping wrapping repo and then plugging in the prefix into every function call inside of repo. And I was like, oh, I had never considered even doing it like that. Because I know there's a there's the prepare query, but prepare query, if I remember correctly, doesn't run for like every single instance of every repo method. And so people will wrap it. And then so when you call your custom wrapper, like my special repo dot get, then it reaches out to repo.get, but also appends the prefix option to it. But yeah, I could see how maintaining a whole bunch of databases with the prefix could be a lot more complicated than just adding in a column and and then being able to use Ecto normally. Yeah. I don't know if this qualifies as wrapping repo, but I have used the repo module where you use the behavior in there. So that's where all the functions get injected. And I've added functions in there, you know, so it acts like a regular like it's always been there, right? <laughs> and one way I've used it is I was on Ecto, an earlier version of Ecto 3. And uh, I think a later version of Ecto introduced the the function exists, you know, question mark. And I needed that. I wanted that. Uh, and it's an easy query, right? But just, just having it on repo would be really, really great instead of using one of my, one of my uh, other functions. So I just added it to the repo uh, module. And now I can use that exists question everywhere. I essentially backported the, the, the feature <laughs> into my Ecto instead of, uh, instead of upgrading. <laughs> I've since upgraded for the record, but, um, <laughs> but it, it is nice to, yeah, to, to remember that you, that repo is yours. You know, you, you can put your own function in there and, and wrap it if you, if you really need to. But just a, a shout out to like the architecture that a lot of libraries that we use, you know, that, that they're very flexible. Um, and Ecto is, you know, included in that. It's a, it's a really nice interface. One question I had as I was thinking about coming back to this topic of putting MFA functions that I can reference on these associations, it's just a regular function. It's getting executed. But I imagine there's some things that we really should not do in those functions just because of when they're called. It occurred to me like, well, I probably shouldn't run in a query you know, or other database operations. You know, it would be really bad if I like, did something that mutated the database when you're executing these things. Have you had any thoughts or observations about what is appropriate to put in here and what we should not do? So the query thing is something that I thought about too. 
There's no perfect software design that applies to all problems. But I, again, I would generally not recommend making database queries, especially large ones, though you could absolutely do that. Uh, you could also interact with processes in, def in, in the default callback function, but then you're probably over-engineering your application design. So yeah, don't do that either. As you've gone through and, and learned some of these things to solve these problems, and but you know, just kind of seen like, oh, here's something new that Ecto has done. Are there any other thoughts that maybe anything has surprised you along the way as you've gone through and learned these things? And maybe even as you're just blogging about this and writing this up? This feature itself was pretty surprising as I absolutely did not expect this. Maybe, you know, I'm biased or I've just gotten used to Ecto since I've been using it for so, so long, but this is what surprised me. So, and I guess this just goes to show how Ecto has evolved from, you know, just a simple quote unquote database library and to a general purpose toolkit to interact with external data. Well, is there anything else that you'd like to cover here or maybe that we haven't mentioned that you'd like to highlight? I would like to summarize the use cases for the feature, you know, again, quickly. And maybe, you know, uh, tie in how we actually use it at Slab. So the, main, the two main use cases at Slab are multi-tenancy and data consistency and reliability, as previously mentioned. Data reliability is ensured by automatically setting the correct organization ID on all associations leaving no room for mistakes, especially on complex schema associations, where there are multiple references between different schemas. And uh, this is especially helpful when combined with Ecto's prepared query callback, or in Slab's case, uh, the custom wrapper I previously mentioned, to ensure that there are no data leaks between two different organizations or teams. So we can rest easy that you know there's not going to be a privacy breach of one organization or team's data has no possibility of leaking to another org. Nice. And those are really powerful and beneficial things for the team, you know, just helping to give confidence that your system is going to be reliable in that way. So that's awesome. You guys did a lot more Rails than I did. I never really spent any time in that world, but I know that there was always that, and I don't even want to call it a problem. There was always that situation of like, you had a lot of code in your models. Is this right? And so I know in the Elixir Phoenix pattern, like we're pushing more of our code into our contexts and usually our models or in our case, our schemas are usually pretty thin. So are we starting to move back? Because like now we have these defaults and we can add a bunch of functionality that's like on the model layer again. And you could mm. potentially have some complex stuff going on in these defaults and these join defaults. Like, are we now starting to move that needle back into putting code into our models? Air quotes. <laughs> I don't think so. I mean, this is just simply using Ecto schema, you know, the, the, the features that are available with it. But you do bring up a good point, you know, like a, sometimes the schema needs to be as, uh, as dumb as possible, right? Where it has no knowledge of business. I don't suspect that this is really about business. I think this is on the layer of data, you know, integrity. And that's, that feels important to me. You know, like in this case, you know, records and tracks using that, that, that example, like I don't think there would ever be a case and you'd have to be sure of this, you know, when you're writing the code, you, there should never be a case where you need those, those IDs to be set differently, you know, like, that, and and if there is a case, then I believe, yeah, I wonder if there's a, maybe there's a different schema that you should make with those different use cases then with those different defaults. 
Or maybe that function maybe then does move up to the context and you start chaining some functions together to do that extra little validation or business logic. I, I don't know where, where that falls on the line of, of business logic versus data integrity. I just want to make sure I have it clear in my mind about when these default functions get called. It seems to me that these only get called if I'm creating a track through that association. Is that right? Like as opposed to if I just go into the track schema and say, create a new instance of that, it's not going to be pulling any data back from like a a parent association, right? The main path through which this is called is, you know, chain sets and using put ASOC or cast ASOC. So that's the only way you have a reference to the parent. Right. That makes sense. So that, that comes down to a lot more about perhaps my usage. Like my form is, uh, is where I'm accepting data and I'm I'm building it through that change set with the cast ASOC. Because a lot of the times I was thinking about like how how does my code differ because I haven't been using this. And a lot of the times with my contexts, when I have this kind of explicit relationship, uh, my context might like if it's a I have an account and then maybe I have products under an account, something like that. Right. So when I say create on my products context, I might just say passing in, here's the account uh, schema struct. And then the thing I'm creating is like, that's where I have my data connected and associated. So that's where I have it explicitly done. So I was just kind of trying to make sure I understood where this actually happens and how that's pulled together. So that totally makes sense though. It's like through that casting associations. I I remember that being a pretty confusing part of using and, and understanding Ecto too. Like having several change sets, so I have a separate one for track versus you know a, a artist or album versus cast associ. Uh, you said ASOC, yeah, but I, I, I in my head I always say put cast associ short for association. Uh, so cast associ, uh, you know, which which will take the parameters in and build the association for you, and that's where this MFA can come in place or these defaults come in place because you're doing it from like the parent change set at that point. There's still a change set downstream, but it's using that function to build it, I guess, and validate it versus put association or put association. And that's where you don't use the, you know, the change set. You kind of like bypass it, right? Or, or you construct it yourself or the struct yourself and you just, you put it in there and that's all, it's all it is. It's like, it's like uh, no validation basically, right? So I remember that being a pretty confusing point for me uh, in, in Ecto. But there's hopefully a little bit of clarification there. And, and yeah, it kind of depends on, on where your data is coming from and where is it most convenient. It's probably going to be convenient through uh, cast association. I, I find myself using that more often than, than the others. Going back to what Cade said, you know, like uh, practicing uh, f- slim controllers, slim models and fat controllers versus fat models and all that kind of stuff. I know that's been a pretty old practice, I think, in, in Rails and, and there's a lot of ways to organize your code. But I think either Elixir or Ruby or Rails folks, like they'd all say the same thing. You don't want a lot of code in any anywhere. <laughs> you want to try to split it up to where it makes sense. And uh, nowadays with Phoenix and with the introduction of, you know, like context modules seems to be more equivalent to, in my mind, Rails and Ruby service objects. They're the things in the middle that kind of orchestrate things. So I, I don't imagine that anybody in Ruby or Rails would say, yeah, yeah we, we want a lot of code in our model or, or a lot of code in our controller. I don't think anybody's going to say that. Same thing in Elixir. I don't think folks start getting uncomfortable when there's hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of lines of code somewhere, I think. 
So just want to point that out. Like generally folks are going to say, yeah, let's start, let's abstract this into a, into a module or let's abstract this into a service object or something. That's a good observation. And I appreciate Cade bringing that up because it is, you know, you, you, when you've been in the space for a while, you kind of forget about those points. Like you mentioned, David, like when you're coming new to Ecto, it's like, oh yeah, I remember I had a struggle around this and around that. It's like, yeah, we we forget because we've just settled into this is how we do it. Mm-hmm. It's good to challenge those ideas and just, uh, you know, have people, you know, working with someone who's a more junior where they can ask those questions helps you really realize where your belief and your idea comes from. It's like, oh yeah, like this is the way I do it. Why do you do it that way? Well, I, I don't know. I guess, I guess it's because of this. You know, so it's, it's, it's instructive for ourselves anyway. Well, Sherryar, I really appreciate you taking the time to come and talk with us and especially writing up a blog post like this and just sharing kind of like these fun discoveries that you kind of make along the way and saying, hey, check this out. Did you know this could do this? I learned something from it and I'm glad for that and just glad for your willingness to you know put it out there. So I did have a, another question about Slab though, just as we're closing out. Where is Slab located? Because you said they're hiring. Are, is this a global kind of audience? Are they located in one region? What What's the situation there? So Slab's HQ is in San Francisco, but we are fully distributed. You can work from anywhere in the world. Uh, we're a fully remote company. And you're working from Pakistan. So that's like 100% proof right there, right? Yeah. Well, Sherryar, if people want to follow you online or get in touch with you, where should they go to do that? Uh, you can find me on Twitter at twitter.com slash or you can reach out to me at, uh, via email at hello at shahyar.me. Nice. And we'll have links to all that in the show notes. Well, thank you again. Appreciate your time. But that's all the time we have for today. So thank you for listening. And we hope you'll join us next time on Thinking Elixir. Uh